0: God speaks to us through his word in Acts 1, 1 through 11. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up, after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. He said to them, it is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. This is the word of the Lord.
1: All right. Good morning. Everybody doing good today? Sweet. One person on the right over here is doing okay. Um, Hey, it's good to see you guys. Uh, Welcome back to our college students. Excuse me. Uh, We love you guys. Hope you had a great Easter break for those that were here celebrating Easter with us. Man, really, it uh, was just a sweet day. Um, Resurrection Day. That's what, that's what traditionally Easter has been known as, is Resurrection Day, which is fitting because it is the day where the global church, for, since Jesus was raised from the dead, it's the day when the global church celebrates the fact that God Himself became a man Himself and lived among us, and actually never sinned once, and then died a brutal death, and because he was perfect and sinless, God the Father raised God the Son up from the dead, which is actually way too common. Like what I just told you is such a common story that there was no reaction in the room. Now I just wanna try, you try to get this inside your brain real quick everybody is going to die nobody's there's not a single person who's not going to die every single body is that's a fact i mean we can at least agree on that fact like there nobody in their right mind with good sense through the history of humanity would say that okay there's one thing taxes <laughs> two things and death death is coming for everyone How, what are the way, is there any way that we can avoid that reality? I'm faced with it, you're faced with it. There's an anxious heartbeat around the fact that eternity is coming for everyone. Well, Jesus faced death. He faced it, just like you're gonna face death, except the difference is, is that he defeated death, and you're going to lose to it. That's the difference. But here's the reality for the Christian in the room, why the resurrection is so crazy. And so first, it just is crazy. It's just a crazy story, let's just admit. But why it's so powerful for us is because of this. If you are a Christian, and even if you're not a very good one, but if you just are one, you've said, I trust that Jesus defeated death, then that means the work that he did to face and defeat death is now attributed to you. Because Jesus defeated death, you can now defeat death. That's why the Christian celebrates the resurrection. It's not just a story. Come on, somebody say amen. It ain't just a story. And let me ask you this, are we here for stories? Okay, let's have an honest conversation real quick. Did you come here today because you're like, man, that church Church is cool because it gives me a really good history lesson. In Frontline, they talk about Corinthians, they talk about the Bible, they talk about the story of God, and it's just a good history lesson. I like history, I think it's interesting. I'm gonna go to that church, and that's why I go to church. Or, not just that, but, or is it like, you know what, we're in Shawnee, America. In Shawnee, Oklahoma, you just probably should go on ahead and go to church if you want people to respect you, if you wanna be be able to talk about anything with anybody, have a good you know, common just like friendship with people, it's a good idea for you to just go on ahead and be a part of a church and even if you only show up once every 10 years or whatever, you can say I'm a part of that church, therefore I can get along with people in the Bible Belt. Is that why we're here? I mean, at what point does that dry up? (laughs) Pretty quick for me. That's a pretty quick up for me, meaning that like, I don't really care to go and be a part of a social club. Or maybe you think that church is the place where you connect, which it should be. I'm all about that. Man, we, we love connection here. We welcome cards. We try to get people. We have a community group that meets in homes throughout the week. We want people to know each other and live their life together, but is that just it? I mean, do we just show up because it's like, you know what? I think there's people there that are kind of like-minded and I can hang out with and that do the same stuff that I do, but that's about it. Because let me tell you, if that's it, there are plenty of other things that you need to go and join. There, I think Shawnee has a bowling league. Uh, social clubs. I mean, what most of the world has figured out is like if that's the point, then we just need to just spend most of the time at the bar. People will talk to you there, coffee shop, whatever. My point is this, why are we here? If last week we celebrated that a man named Jesus stood death face to face and defeated it, if that's what we celebrate and say that we believe, What does that have to do with your everyday life? And shouldn't that change the way that we live? I mean, just come on, man, think with me just for a minute. If it is true that Christ defeated death, defeated it, slayed it, the keys to the kingdom are in his hands. If that's true, then shouldn't we do more, shouldn't our lives reflect that more than just an event that happened? And we go, I believe that that happened. Let's go to the buffet. I Look, what I'm gonna propose to you today is this. If the resurrection is true, it has to mean more than just one time deal. It has to. It takes a claim on our life. It means something more for just a thing that I go, I believe that because my parents told me that I should. No, no, if the resurrected Jesus, if Christ himself is literally raised from the dead and glorified and has been given the name above every name and at his name, every, somebody said every, every knee will bow and tongue will confess the fact that he is Lord, every knee, Every single person who's ever lived, that knee, you name them, they will confess that he is Lord. If that is true, then that stakes a claim on my whole life. The man that comes out of the grave, comes out of the grave, gets to tell me what to do. I have yet to be able to do that. It's our reality now. And what I'm doing is I'm looking at my own life and I'm preaching a sermon to myself today, I promise you that. I'm looking at my own life and I'm looking at the life of this church and I'm looking at the life of the church in Shawnee and I'm going, where is the power of the resurrection? Where is it? Why are we so apathetic towards God? Have you ever asked yourself that? Where is the power, where is the power of the, are we so, do we have enough courage to ask ourselves? Why don't I experience the power of the resurrection in my life? Why doesn't the church experience the power of the resurrection? We go to church, we do the thing, we try, man, we whatever, but there's no power. There's no power. Are we literally just chasing our tail? Are we just spinning our wheels with being church people but not people of the resurrection? What would that look like to say, I'm a person of the resurrection? That should change the way that we get up in the morning. And here's the truth is, the whole of the Christian life is not mountaintop, man. If you're, if you're living in that reality, you're gonna be sorely disappointed. There are valleys and a lot of it is the valley, but the fact is this is like, even in the valley according to Psalm 23, I fear not, I know that you are with me. Who here knows that God is with them? Do we live in the power of the resurrection? I don't think we do. I don't think we do. And I think today we're going to discover why we don't. And it's going to be very uncomfortable for some of you in the room. I'm just letting you know. It's going to be uncomfortable. But we need it, man. We need it. I'm gonna ask you to put all of your ideals about God, how he operates and works in the world. I'm gonna ask you to do the thing that we should do every time we come to the Bible and say, God, I don't actually know all there is to know about you. You know all there is to know about you and you revealed it in this book. So let's go to the book. Let's say, God, will you please teach me the things that I don't know about your power in the world? Amen? Acts one, one through 11 today. It starts this way, Jesus has died, he has been raised from the dead, he has appeared to several people according to Acts 40 days worth. And now he's about to be ascended into heaven. So when Jesus died and was raised from the dead, uh, God gave him a glorified body, which if, if you belong to Christ, that exact thing will happen to you. When Jesus returns, your body will be glorified. Death is not death for you, it's actually death is the start of life if you belong to Christ. He's around the, the, apostles, uh, the disciples now. Luke wrote the book of Acts and here's what Luke said about Jesus. Now it's easy for us before we get here and we're gonna move quickly but it's easy for us to think the resurrection happened, God accomplished the work that he set out to do which is true but then we read Acts 1 and it kind of blows all of that up and here's why, here's what it says. Luke says to Theophilus, in the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all the things Jesus began to do and teach. I have dealt with all the things that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up after he, had, after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. This is so interesting because if our theology is correct and the resurrection was the end, that was it, accomplished, it is true, he accomplished his work, then shouldn't it just stop there? And for a lot of people in the room, and me at myself, that's what I tend to think about Easter. It just stops. But here comes Luke, who was a disciple. Luke, who was close to to God. And he says this, he says, Jesus began to do and teach. He hasn't even started his work, he's just started now. His resurrection was the beginning of the work that he's gonna do. What an interesting thing for Luke to say the resurrection of Jesus really did happen, then it has to be more than just an event, it has to change our reality. He's saying it was just the beginning. Jesus even said it himself in John 16, he says to the disciples, nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. Why would he say that? This is Jesus on earth. Now imagine this, please. Let's treat the disciples and let's treat them like they had a heartbeat and they were real and they had a mind and they needed food like you do, and they probably even got hangry, like a lot of you probably do, like I for sure do. In the flesh, Jesus, right next to Sidon, the incarnate son, they could reach out and grab his arm, and if they did, his arm, they would feel blood flow. This is God Almighty as a human. That really happened. They had slept on the ground with him They had found food with him. Imagine that, you ever been camping? Anybody's ever served in the military or served on that level with anybody else? It's like you lived three years with someone, you know them, you want them to stay and Jesus knowing his disciples says to them, it is better if I leave you. Why would he say that? Why? Here's why he says it. It is to your advantage. It would be better if I go away, that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. Who is this helper? It's better if I go. We're gonna talk about this. We're gonna talk about where the church gets its true power from and where it doesn't get power from. What drains the church's power and it's all centered around this one specific passage, the helper, That's how the Bible describes the Holy Spirit, the helper. All right, man, so let's jump in. Please open your heart and your mind today. If you take notes, this is a good time to start. Where does the church not get its power from? And here's the first one. A church's power isn't found in comfort. It isn't found in comfort. Let's jump back into this story in Acts. Verse four. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me, for John baptized, you heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. What an interesting thing for Jesus to say to them, while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem. I don't know about you, but I don't need someone to order me to do something that I want to do. You ever gotten orders to do something that you absolutely want to do? Ben, I'm ordering you to eat this three ice cream scoop sundae with caramel and chocolate fudge. I'm ordering you to do that. I would be like, you should forever be my boss, forever. I mean, the very definition of submission means that you don't necessarily want to do it. Now, Jesus in his ascended body, in his glorified body before he ascends, He has to order them to stay put in Jerusalem. And the reason I bring that up is because you have to know this. They had a a point to stay there. The Holy Spirit was going to come, Jesus was going to send them the power of the Holy Spirit. It takes discomfort for the church to receive its power. And why do you say that, Pastor? Because of this. There might not have been a more uncomfortable situation in the history of the disciples' lives than for them to be in the place where they were shamed and their boss was murdered. Jerusalem, imagine how uncomfortable that was for them. This is where Peter had denied Christ. These are the very people that Peter denied Christ to. Imagine if the person that you have said that you follow, the person that you love the most, Even if it's not to that degree, just someone that you know, imagine if they were, look, the crucifixion would have been the most shameful thing they could have ever done to anybody that you know. So it's not even the same, but imagine if your boss or your spouse or your whoever had made national news for something so despising that it caused them to be crucified and the man that they crucified told you, stay in the town. Do you know how uncomfortable that would have been? Can you imagine going to the grocery store in that town? Hey, aren't you a disciple of the guy that was crucified? The crucifixion was meant for the worst type of person. Literally, people that did the worst things in society were crucified. Jesus did none of that and they crucified him. And going even into the market, just walking down the street, getting out of the house, can you imagine the anxiety you would feel? Talk about being canceled. Discomfort. He tells them there's a reason. Stay in Jerusalem. God the Holy Spirit is gonna come and give you power. A church's power is not found in being comfortable. In a lot of ways, the reason I bring this up is you and me and the whole American church has been lulled to sleep. We have now sat at the altar of comfort. We don't like the idea of discomfort. We don't like the idea of being uncomfortable. It's easy for us to say, even in certain churches maybe, that look, hey, let's just do everything we possibly can to make people feel comfortable. And so we don't preach the gospel, which is actually uncomfortable. The gospel says first, there's something wrong before there's something right. And the wrong thing is this, you are a sinner that needs a savior and you cannot save yourself. That's highly offensive. And even the American church for years, I feel like, and I'm not like thinking about one particular church. I'm just saying this is in us. This has become a core thing in the American church where we do everything that we can to get people in the door. And then when people come in the door because it's, Fun and it's whatever and it's exciting, or whatever it is, and they don't really ever say anything offensive, and the music's good, and man, they've got cool lights or whatever. you know I nothing wrong with any of these things. But what you get is you get a crowd of people, and you don't actually get a church at all. And you get a church that's centered around the idol of comfort. Nothing's ever uncomfortable. When Jesus' first command to them is, do the uncomfortable thing. Stay in Jerusalem. Stay in Jerusalem. Second Chronicles tells us this. The fact is this, according to Second Chronicles. In order to see God move in my personal life and in the life of the church, we have to do an uncomfortable thing. Here's a promise from God in 2 Chronicles 7. If my people who are called by my name humble themselves, pray, seek my face, turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and I will forgive their sin and I will heal their land. Does our land need healing? Yes. You cannot get there from comfortability If my people will do the first thing that's so uncomfortable, humble themselves. Face your pride, humble yourselves, pray. Pray is dependence upon God. It says I cannot make this thing happen, that's uncomfortable. Seek my face, look towards God, not seek my own welfare, not seek my own paycheck, not seek my own life, look towards God. If he gives me all of these things, praise God. But I'm gonna seek the kingdom of God first and his righteousness, and then these things will be added. Turn from their wicked ways. Confession to even admit we are wicked, we need to turn. This is uncomfortable. Then I will heal their land. Jesus tells the disciples, stay, be uncomfortable. I know it's crazy, I know you hate it, but stop worshiping the idol of comfort. Church's power is not found in comfort Second, the church's power isn't found in self-reliance. Verse five, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Remember how Jesus described this in the book of John 16, seven, which we just read as the helper. Look, if God, if anybody tells you that you need someone called the helper, then there's a good chance that you're not able to do that thing on your own. And actually this is true for everybody that's ever been made. God made man, and he says this one thing about man. It's not good that man be alone. It's not good that man be alone. This isn't just about Adam and Eve, although it is some. It's about the church. It's not good that man be alone. You are not made to produce results for the kingdom of God in your own life by yourself or in the world around you by yourself. You need God to do that. You need a helper. Self-sufficiency is the enemy of the church's power. James four says this, or do you suppose there's no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he is made to dwell in us? But he gives more grace. Listen to this. Therefore it says God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Self-sufficiency is a symptom of that kind of arrogance, that kind of pride. And can you imagine what it's like for the one that upholds the universe of His power by the word of his power to be in opposition to you? I don't, you're not gonna win, you ain't winning that one. He opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. It is silly to think that we can muster enough strength for us to will the power of God in the church, to will the kingdom of God to come. We need a helper. The third is this, the church's power isn't found in our own version of God. Verses six through seven. All right, the disciples. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the, king, the kingdom to Israel? All right, hold on, Let me, I just wanna talk about this real quick. The disciples, for anybody that was here through our study of the book of Mark, you would have known all about the disciples and what they actually wanted Jesus to do. They really thought, that Jesus was gonna come down and he was gonna overthrow the Roman government and he was gonna make Israel the top dog in the world again. That was like the whole point. Messiah, if God comes, surely he will establish Israel as the king over the world and he will put us at his right hand as like rulers. That's what the disciples did. As a matter of fact, Peter rebuked Jesus when he said that he was gonna go and die and that when Jesus said, I came to serve and not be served, Peter rebuked him. What do you mean you're gonna die? You're supposed to overthrow this government and establish us as the rulers of the government. And then Jesus rebuked Peter. I don't know if you know this story or not, but he says, get behind me, Satan. Jesus tells Peter that. One of his disciples, get behind me, calls him Satan. So it's a whole nother sermon to even talk about like what we would feel like if Jesus called us Satan. You know, that would help me perk up a little bit and go, I said something really wrong just now. So after Christ has died, has proven that he's God, has been raised from the dead, is now resurrected, they still, they still think, you're gonna give us the kingdom, right? So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? If I was Jesus, I'm telling you right now, I would have said, God, I have done, I'm, it's accomplished, I need different disciples now. I've done what you asked me to do. I cannot take these people anymore. Have you, did you listen to what they just said? I'm standing here in a glorified body and they're asking me if I'm gonna give them the thing that they want. But Jesus, of course, look, we should all be glad that Jesus is Jesus and I'm not, but he said to them, it is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. Here are the facts. There is only one God. He was not made, he is the one who does the making. You and I were made by him and for him. We cannot make God and we sure can't make him in our image. We were made in his image. There will never be a scenario where we know more about God than he knows about himself. There will never be a scenario where we know more about ourselves than God knows about ourselves. There will never be a scenario where we know more about the way the world should work or does work more than God does. God is all knowing, all knowing. He knows everything and you don't. To try to pretend like God should be who we want him to be and do what we want him to do is the height. It is the height, there is no place for us to go that is more arrogant than that. That is the height of arrogance. God, I will love you if, do this thing for me. God, why have you not done this thing for me? God, I think I deserve this thing. If you will do this thing for me, then I will worship you. I've said that before in my life. If you will just heal me, if you will just, and I'm telling you, for me, It is the height of arrogance. There is no plateau higher than that for us to go with our pride. The problem is that everybody in this room and everybody who has ever lived and everybody who ever called Jesus their Lord, we're all bent towards this way of thinking. It's not just the disciples who now with resurrected Jesus would say, aren't you gonna restore the kingdom now? It's all of us and we keep being bent towards this. We fall into the same trap of believing that God is only worth my time and primarily worth my time when I need something. Give us the thing we deserve and be the type of God who does that, who can be convinced the very type of thing that keeps us tied down in perpetual apathy towards the resurrected Christ. Many of you in the room today, and me included, we have been apathetic toward God for a while. We feel apathetic, we miss zeal, we miss it. And I would invite you to do several things, but I would just look at like, where are you trying to get power from? Is it in your own version of God? Is it in self-reliance? Is it in comfort? There is, look, the church is the way that God is gonna bring his kingdom on earth. Don't you think that he intends for her to have power? Don't you think that he intends for you to have power? There is a way, and it's the only way And it's gonna be so uncomfortable for a lot of you to hear in this room. I'm gonna ask you to open up your heart a little bit now and be open to the fact that maybe what I'm about to say is actually for our good. There is one way that the church has power, and it's this, it comes from the Holy Spirit. The church's power comes from the Holy Spirit. It doesn't come from our skepticism of the Holy Spirit, It doesn't come from us questioning his authority, it comes from us trusting and falling on our face at the authority and power of God the Holy Spirit, who is in fact God, along with the Father and the Son, who did in fact kneel down and form man from the dust, who has in fact never been made, who also has all authority, who also has all power, who is also all knowing and omnipresent, and always everywhere at once. God the Holy Spirit is what empowers the church to not be apathetic, to have passion, to spread mission, to obey. We get power for obedience from him. What caused the disciples to stay in Jerusalem? It was the promise of God the Holy Spirit. Maybe you're struggling today to obey God, maybe, You say, why can't I just do this? Because everybody here, me included, we love self-reliance, but that's not where power comes from. Maybe you're fighting things that you have fought forever. I'm telling you, I'm preaching to myself. How can we overcome these things? There's only one way. The power for obedience comes from God the Holy Spirit. It would make sense that we still struggle with the same types of things that we struggle with on and on when we're so skeptical about God the Holy Spirit. That means that we don't actually trust him, or submit to him. It's actually blasphemy for me and you both to say I submit to Christ, but I don't submit to God, the Holy Spirit. There's no such thing, it's one God. One God, three persons. The power for obedience comes from God, the Holy Spirit. Are you struggling to obey? Then I would invite you to say, God, Holy Spirit, help me. Help me, you are the helper. Help me, I can't figure it out. The power for unity comes from the Holy Spirit. It doesn't do us any good to just try and be unified. Have you ever noticed how things just always kind of bend the opposite way from unity? You ever notice that, that we think things about people even though they may or may not have said those things? We build accusations in our mind. I have a list of things that I'll accuse someone of whether they did it or not. I do all that just in my own mind. How is it that we can be unified? We're unified through God the Holy Spirit. Ephesians four, therefore a prisoner of the Lord urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. How in the world? Eager to do what? Eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. You cannot create unity. God the Holy Spirit creates unity in us just because we're saved. Our job is to be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. How do you have the courage to go to someone and not avoid conflict? How do you have the courage to go to someone and say, hey, I've been upset at you because of this, 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 and this. How can you find the courage to do that? God the Holy Spirit. I... I meet, a lot of you guys do. I do too. Meet with people. You have friends, and I guess part of my job is meeting with people. And um, there's a lot of times where people are at odds with each other. And I'll hear comments. And, and um, I've had multiple times with husbands and wives or are just in friendships where someone will be at odds, or they'll be upset, and there'll be years worth of being upset. And they'll say, Well, they do this, they do this, they do this, they do this. And, Consider them really an enemy at that point. I've had husbands and wives do that, which maybe you've been in that scenario. And I'll spend an hour, I'll spend days, maybe even months and just talking about, well, you should try these things, you should try this, you should try that. And inevitably, when it gets to this point is when I start to lose someone. This is actually the thing that we need. We can avoid all the other stuff, all the other like directives or suggestions and just go to this one thing. And this usually changes the heart. But it makes people so uncomfortable. They can't fathom this. So I, what I want you to do right now is to think about, if I were to give you this advice and I'm giving it to me too, think about somebody that you're at odds with right now in your life. And that if I were to invite you, hey, why don't you pray for them? Pray for them. Pray that God the Holy Spirit would move in their life. Pray that God the Holy Spirit would move in your life. Pray that the Holy Spirit would work in both of you. That moment, is it's like it shifts. People go, I I don't know if I can do that even though the Lord said pray for your enemies. The Holy Spirit is the tie that binds for unity. He's the one, we need him for it. It's also power for the Christian life. It's power to obey God, it's power for unity, it's power for the Christian life. Uh, Galatians five, I say, walk by the spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the spirit and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things that you want to do. But if you are led by the spirit, you are not under the law. Paul says, you've got the spirit and the flesh, they're in opposition. Walk by the spirit, don't walk by the flesh. How is it that you can live in obedience to God? How is it that you can even follow Christ? We're missing a whole step. It's a trick that the enemy has played on us, that the Holy Spirit doesn't matter, that you actually have everything that you need to just go on ahead and be sinless. And that's why when we're not sinless, what do we feel? Shame on ourselves. Why can't I just do it? Hey, man, I'm talking uniquely right now to those of you who know that you cannot do it. I'm talking to the humble person in the room. You're missing the point. The point is this, God the Holy Spirit gives us fuel to fight sin and to follow Jesus. So maybe, again, you've been struggling for years, I don't know what it is, but I just wanna invite you, pray, Holy Spirit, come and change my heart, come and change the direction of my life. Stop trying to do something that you were never created to do, which is just be sinless. Trust God the Holy Spirit. Get his help. He's the helper. And finally this. It's power for obedience. It's power for unity. It's power for the Christian life. And it's power for mission. Acts 1.8. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the end of the earth. That's literally think about it in circles, where we are now, maybe the town I'm in, maybe the county I'm in, or whatever, and I love this, because Jesus says, he doesn't say to them, look, at this point, all authority has been given to Jesus, and he says that, all authority has been given to me, therefore go and make disciples of all nations. That's like a, that's just him letting everybody know, you don't get to say no to this, I have all authority, you have to do this if you're a Christian, and now everybody starts being terrified, (laughs) Just like you mean, I have to go. I have to go tell. I have to go open my mouth and tell people about Jesus. If I'm a Christian, if I submit to Christ, I'm gonna say yes. You do. You don't, there's no, there is zero option for you to not do that. You have to do that. But now the problem is, is that we're scared to death. How do we have the courage? Where does the fuel come from? And Jesus is so clear. He says this: When the Holy Spirit has come upon you, then you will be my witnesses. You need the power of God the Holy Spirit in order to even tell people about God. It's amazing how much courage we have when we feel like we're fueled by God to do something. The best thing we can do today to confront apathy and complacency in our lives is to pray for and submit to the presence and the power of God the Holy Spirit. He is worthy of all praise, all praise. C.S. Lewis says it this way, it talks about fuel. What do we need for fuel? God made us, he says, invented um, us as a man invents an engine. A car is made to run on petrol and it would not run properly on anything else. Now God designed the human machine to run on himself. If he, he himself is the fuel our spirits were designed to burn or the food our spirits were designed to feed on, there is no other. That is why it is just no good asking God to make us happy in our own way without bothering about religion. God cannot give us a happiness and peace apart from himself because it just is not there. We need power, we need fuel, you need it. We need to fight apathy, we need the presence of God in our lives in order to follow God with our lives. I wanna invite you to get outside yourself and pray for, think about, talk to neighbors, coworkers about Jesus, have the courage and fire to do it by the power and the presence of God, the Holy Spirit. Finally, in closing, the host of heaven confirm it. Jesus is ascending, he has ascended. I don't know at what speed, what rate of speed he ascended into heaven. I don't know how many miles per hour, if any. I'm assuming it wasn't slow, because that's just awkward and you know. And here's what happened, he's got got all these men around, disciples. They have now watched him um, ascend at probably, you know, decent clip. (laughs) And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, now just imagine this, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes while they were gazing. Now just imagine, they're still looking up. It's however fast it was, he had just descended. They were going, okay, man, that is crazy what's happening right now. That's our brother and friend Jesus literally floating up into the sky. You would have been gazing too is what I'm trying to say. These angels came while they were gazing and said, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven, he will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. And I'm bringing this up to you because I think this is what the American church does. I think we just kinda get caught in this trance of like, hey, we're the church, he's Jesus, let's just stare at him. (laughs) Let's just sing the songs, which we love doing here. Let's just have 100 Bible study, let's just whatever it is. But then you're missing the fuel. When an angel would come to you like it did to them and said, come on, hey, stop staring. You you have been given your orders. You need the Holy Spirit according to the one who has all authority. You need God, the Holy Spirit, and now it's time for you to get up, leave the church building, go tell somebody about Jesus, go pray and ask for the power of God, the Holy Spirit in your life. I'm talking about daily. Stop staring. Stop staring. Get to work. Go work and then come back don't forsake the gathering of believers. Come back to church, but then get out of here. Get out of here. Go to work. You've got work to do. Set your gaze. Look, it actually doesn't even make sense. If For you to think that your gaze is still on Jesus by just waiting for him to come back, really what the Bible says is like, according to this is you're not even looking at Him at all. He's moving. He's out and about. If you want to follow Jesus, that means you've got to stop staring and waiting for him to come back. He will come back, assure you of that. You need the power of the Holy Spirit to go and follow him. He's bringing his kingdom. He's bringing it through the church. The Bible describes the church as the body of Christ, meaning this, you are his work on earth. You're his work, stop staring, go, move, be active. We're in a daze in America, we're in a trance, we sing the songs, go to church, hear the sermons, go to the buffet and then we take a nap. I've done all these things multiple times. We run the rat race and we run it all back every week. And we just come in here because we're supposed to, we don't have any power, we don't have any action, we don't have any mission. We don't have any passion, and there's absolutely no evidence that Jesus defeated death and rose from the grave and that he saved my soul. So what do we do about it? I want us to be people of power and passion. I don't wanna chase my tail just doing church because it's just what we do. I wanna be people who pray to the Holy Spirit and ask for his presence and help in our lives, and then let's be people that listen intently And according to James, we become doers of the word and not just hearers. And then let's be people that obey quickly. People who see our jobs and see your home, your house, and then also see your money and your stuff as an opportunity for the Holy Spirit to work through you to spread the kingdom of God into your neighborhood. Next week, we're gonna start our study on the gifts of the Holy Spirit in the church. It's just where we are in 1 Corinthians 12 through 14. It's gonna be about 10 or 11 weeks worth of that. It's a lot. I'm gonna invite you to do something. It might make you a little uncomfortable, I get it, but the church doesn't find its power in comfort. I'm gonna invite you to do something every single day for the next 11 weeks, every day, Pray this, Holy Spirit, work in my life today. Just a simple prayer. Holy Spirit, work in my life. Wake up in the morning. You're gonna be tired. You know, I don't know. I'm just, maybe I'm putting my stuff on you. You're gonna be tired whenever you wake up. Wake up, get up, tired, sleepy. Holy Spirit, work in my life today. And then go on about your day. And maybe, probably what'll happen is he'll remind you to pray that throughout the day and then however many times he, remind, he reminds you to pray, when you, that's when you think about it. Just pray, Holy Spirit, work in my life today. And then hopefully what'll happen is you'll say, Holy Spirit, work in this meeting I'm about to go into. Holy Spirit, work in this grocery store. I'm dead serious. Holy Spirit, help me to spread the gospel today. Holy Spirit, help me. Let's stand together.